you for this time that we have together once again to study your word. And um, we know that this is more than just looking at a structure or looking at what happened out there in the wilderness um, 3,500 years ago. But, Lord, there's application for us to make. And, and Lord, we desire to have a good understanding of the tabernacle, but, but what does it point to? And, and Lord, how can we look at it and, and benefit from it? Um, studying this text and so Lord we ask that you give us application and teach us and Lord that our ears would be open and our, and our hearts open to you and and Lord as we come in in a long day and a long week and and working hard and and um, being up early and uh, Lord I just pray that you'd help us be attentive to what it is that you want to teach us and show us tonight so we give you this time and it's in Jesus name that we pray Amen. Again, just by quick way of review, if, or if you're just joining us in our study of Exodus, Moses is up on the mountain of God, and God is showing him the tabernacle. Of course, it was the Lord, as we saw in chapter 25, that said, Moses, I'm going to, to um, have you build a tabernacle according to the pattern that I'm going to show you. And so it wasn't that the Lord said, yeah, you know, to Moses, you know, build a tabernacle. And Moses said, "Well, okay, I'll get my guys working on a design, and and we'll come up with something. We'll see what you think about it." It wasn't Moses that came to to the Lord and said, "You know what, Lord, I think it'd be a good idea for us to build a tabernacle, so you know we can do these sacrifices, and you can meet with us there." But we always see that God initiated, uh, and He is the initiator um, because He's the one that said that you build a tabernacle, take an offering for it for me. And uh, they were to take an offering, as we saw in chapter 25, of gold and silver and bronze, different metals, stones, spices, and, and, and skins that would make up the tabernacle. And the people were to give to the Lord freely from their hearts. And so we saw a very important principle there that as we give, we are to give with the heart, willing and uh, lee and, and freely and cheerfully is what the New Testament says, as Paul writes to the Corinthian church that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And so the children of Israel, when they left Egypt, of course, we know that they would go to the Egyptians. The Egyptians would give them gold and silver and bronze. It was kind of like back wages for all those years of being in slavery and in bondage and, and um, uh, being uh, the ones that would uh, have that workforce under the slavery of, of Pharaoh for all those years. And so the Egyptians said here, it wasn't that the children of Israel went and stole the gold and the silver. It was given to them by the Egyptians. And the Egyptians said, here, take it and go and leave this land uh, before we end up all dying because the plagues were coming down upon the, the Egyptians. And so the children of Israel are going to give to this tabernacle. We will see later on in Exodus that so much was given that the Lord said, stop, enough is given to, to make the tabernacle. Because as we go through the tabernacle and it's being described to us again, what I want to do is, is to have you have a good understanding of the basics of the tabernacle. So we got an illustration up here that you can look at after a service. Some of you have been looking at it, and it really gives you a picture of the tabernacle and the things that we were doing. But also, as we go through the tabernacle, as I have mentioned to you, that Jesus said that these are they which testify of me, speaking of the scriptures. And so we can see how the furnishings of the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself, speaks of Jesus Christ, points to Jesus Christ as an illustration of Jesus Christ. And we can make that application, but also for the church as well. And so uh, that's what we want to do. And we can go into great detail about every little part of the tabernacle if we really wanted to do that the rings and and all the different cords and everything like that and you can spend a lot of time matter of fact in research and there's some references out there that really get into very specific details what it means and what it's referenced to and how it applies to us and and how it speaks of Jesus Christ but what I want you to do is have a good understanding of the tabernacle itself get some uh, understanding of how it speaks of Jesus Christ what it means for us as the church is, as we uh, know that Jesus, as John chapter 1, uh, there John's gospel in verse 14 of the chapter, says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so Jesus is the one that walked among us. And again, God, the initiator. Um, and he's the one that so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should never perish but have everlasting life. So God initiates and we respond, Moses, build a tabernacle, and there I'm going to meet with my people. 
and I will meet with you between the cherubim as we saw last week. And so God initiating this so he can be with his people so uh, the sacrifices could be done. And so we began to look at again uh, the Ark of the Covenant, that piece of furnishing that would be uh, there in the tabernacle. We're going to talk a little bit more about where it was placed. Uh, the table of showbread, uh, that was that table that it was in the holy place that had 12 loaves, uh, six loaves on each side of the showbread table. And uh, it would be uh, the bread that would be exchanged every week as the priests on the Sabbath would make in, uh, six or 12 more loaves of bread. It also represented what the 12 tribes of Israel, but it also speaks about how Jesus Christ is the bread of life. Uh, we looked at the lampstand, the seven branch golden menorah that would be in the holy place, and it speaks about um, you know, how Israel was to be a light to the other nations, but it also points to the fact that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, but it also speaks to you and to me, doesn't it? Because we are to be light as well. And so all these things that, that we're looking at, we want to continue to look at. So let's look at uh, the tabernacle itself. So we looked at some of the furnishings in chapter 25. The offering was made. The people would give. And this is all what God is telling Moses up here on the mountain. We'll see a little bit later on that we will see that the people did give uh, plenty to this tabernacle. And, and then he's showing the pattern to, to Moses. Moses you build it according to the pattern that I show you. And so the, the Ark of Testimony, the table of showbread, the mercy seat, the golden lampstand. Now we're going to look at the tabernacle itself. Now again, the tabernacle was just a tent. Um, it was something that you're going to see that as they built the tabernacle, it would be able to be torn apart and um, it taken down because the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness. It wasn't that they were just camped in one place for 40 years. The tabernacle here was not a permanent structure. It was a temporary structure. And so we're going to see how it was put together. It was put together in a way that they could fold up this tent and take down the boards and, and take down the curtains. And, and we, when we get to the book of Numbers, we're going to see very specifically how the families of the Levites each had their own responsibilities and what they were to do in taking down the tabernacle. And so if you were to look at the camp of the children of Israel, it wasn't just a massive camp out of two and a half million people. But you would look at the camp and you would see that three tribes with the standard on the north side, three tribes on the east side, there was a standard. Again, Numbers chapter 2 tells us who was the one who carried that standard throughout the wilderness. And, and so uh, the south side had three tribes, the west side had three tribes. In the middle of the camp was the tabernacle itself, and that's where the tribe of Levites were, and that's where Moses and Aaron would dwell. And so you would look at that tent there in the middle of the camp, and then you would see also the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire uh, by night that would be there, the, the, the Shekinah glory of God. So that's what it looked like. And so now we're going to talk about the tent-like structure itself called the tabernacle. And then we're going to look at uh, the, the, the covering that covered the tabernacle, that is the, the animal skins, and then the frame itself that would make up the tabernacle. So let's do that right now as we read in chapter 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread and artistic designs of cherubim. You shall weave them. And the length of each curtain shall be 28 cubics, and the width of each curtain 4 cubics, and every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Now we, we determined that a cubic that we're using in a general terms, and that's the way it is, uh, is about 18 inches long. And so you can kind of get uh, an idea of how long um, these, these curtains were uh, as you take 28, and, and it would be about uh, 60 feet long uh, by, um, by 6 feet wide, these curtains. In verse 3, five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain, and salvage on one set, and likewise she shall do on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Verse 5, 50 loops she shall make in one curtain, and 50 loops she shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the end of the second set, that the loops may be clasped to one another. And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that they may be one tabernacle. So this tabernacle, um, the size of the tabernacle itself that we see was not a huge tent. It was a, a structure that was about 15 feet wide and about 45 feet long. And um, we know that it would have an outer court that we're going to read about in the next chapter as well. 
And so this tabernacle, this tent, is talking about the coverings that would go over the tabernacle. And the, the, the inner curtain that would be the first layer of, of uh, materials was ten curtains made of linen of purple and blue and scarlet color with artistic design of cherubim in them. So uh, it would be this, this curtain that would go down in, on, the, front, on the, uh, the, the inner layer over the tabernacle itself. And then when the priest would walk into the tabernacle with the artistic designs of the cherubim, they would be able to see the cherubim. And, and again, the holy place there, the only source of light was what? That seven-branch golden menorah. And so we're going to see that the boards that make up the frame of the tabernacle are going to be lined with gold. So you can, you can imagine how beautiful it really was when you walked in. These golden walls that are 15 feet high. And, um, and then um, this, uh, here is uh, this, this light of the menorah that's, that's reflecting off the gold. And then you see the tent and its artistic design of cherubim. And cherubim are those angelic creatures, of course, that we see in the vision of Ezekiel in chapter 1 and, and chapter 10 when he's describing to us the throne chariot of God. And Revelation chapter 4, the, the, around the throne of God, John describes to us those angelic beings that are buzzing around the throne of God, the cherubim. And so they're the guardians of the throne of God that we see. And again, it is where God said, I will dwell between the cherubim, the mercy seat that sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies that God says, I'll dwell between the cherubim. And so when we get to heaven, one of the things that clearly that we're going to see that's described to us in Scripture is those angelic creatures, those cherubim that are around the throne of God and, and that we see often mentioned and that were a part of the design of the tabernacle here. And so here are these ten curtains that were made up, uh, this first layer, and they would see the cherubim. There were ten different sections joined together in sets of five. So sets of five curtains, and then they would be attached to another set of five curtains, and they weren't sewn together. Um, remember that as we look at the boards, the, the pattern's going to be shown to Moses that they're going to be put together, and in the case of the curtains, in a system of loops on the fabric with gold clasp to link the loops from one set of five curtains to the other set of five curtains. And so they weren't sewn together because you had to take this ten apart. And so it was a way in which they could take it apart, uh, these different curtains, and then fold it up. It's going to be the same way with the boards. The boards that, that we're going to see, 20 boards on the long side, are not going to be you know, nailed together. It's going to be put in um, in a way to where it can be taken apart and carried. And so we see that these, these, this curtain is made, these, these five sets uh, of curtains joined to another set of five curtains and to make one tabernacle it says here in verse 6 so what does it remind us of it reminds us as we look at the boards coming together as we look at the curtains coming together joining together it's making up one tabernacle and it reminds me of us as we come together to make up you know the tabernacle or that is the temple of God because in the New Testament we see the analogy as Paul writes to the Ephesian church in chapter 2 verse 21 that we all come together to make up a holy temple to the Lord don't we and so all of us we come together join together to make the temple of God Peter writes that we are living stones coming together to make up a holy habitation, to make up one building, one temple, one body of, uh, of the body of Christ is another analogy that Paul uses to the Corinthian church and also in Romans. Coming together is what we do, join together um, as uh, we become the temple of God, as, as unity is coming together in, in Christians. And so that's what it symbolizes to us in that we individually in the New Testament are also described as being the temple of God as well and, and the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And so we'll see some analogies and make some analogies in that as well. So it, it talks about as this tabernacle, making one tabernacle, these curtains coming together, the boards coming together, it reminds us how we are joined together that we may be a holy habitation unto the Lord. We continue in verse 7, and you shall also make curtains of goat's hair, 
to be a tent over the tabernacle, and you shall make 11 curtains. And the length of each curtain shall be 30 cubics, and the width of each curtain 4 cubics. And the 11 curtains shall have all the same measurements. And you shall couple 5 curtains by themselves, and 6 curtains by themselves. And you shall double over the 6th curtain at the forefront of the tent. And you shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain on the second set. Verse 11, and you shall make 50 bronze clasps, but the clasps into the loops and the couple the tent together, that it may be one. And the remnant that remains of the curtains uh, of the tent, the half curtain of the remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle, and a cubic on one side and a cubic on the other side. And what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. You say, whoa, what's that all about? Here, the second layer, um, made of goat's hair, 11 curtains. And this outer covering, and again, there's going to be two more coverings over that, uh, made of goat's hair, it wouldn't be real pretty, but it was very weather-resistant. It's still used by Bedouins today, goat's hair, to make uh, materials out of tent. Bedouins that have been living out there on the land, living in tents for millenniums, ever since Abraham's time. And you can go outside of Jerusalem and, and, and uh, you can see the Bedouins out there in their tents and it's interesting to see them and, and uh, they'll move their tents. Uh, they live in, in all that area of the Middle East, not only in Israel and the Negev Desert, but over in Jordan, if you go over there in Saudi Arabia and Egypt, the Bedouins living off the land. And they'll make their tents out of goats. Uh, hair or use uh, goat skins oftentimes uh, for a covering because it's very weather resistant. And so here, uh, this is a, a larger tent as uh, the 11 curtains are put together and it was long enough as it was uh, over the tabernacle that it came down and touched the ground. And it was long enough, long enough to where the back was covered as well. And so the first Ten curtains didn't quite come down to the ground. This second layer comes down all the way to the ground and covers the back as well. And so um, that's the curtain that is being talked about here. And then in verse 14, and you shall also make a covering of ram skins dyed red for the tent and a covering of badger skins above that. So over the goat's hair, a third covering of ram skin dyed red for the tent. Now isn't it interesting that no dimension is given on this um, ram skin that was dyed red. Because it reminds me that there's no, you know, dimension on the forgiveness of God. And you see, it would be John that would write that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And isn't that good news? And you see, sometimes people can think, God could never forgive me. God could never love me because of what I have done and the life that I live and, and the, the sins that I committed. And, and I have sinned so badly and so greatly that God, could he ever forgive me and my sins? And I am so thankful that the scripture says that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from not some unrighteousness, not most unrighteousness, but from all unrighteousness. And the forgiveness of God is available to anyone. So if you're ever talking to anyone that you feel like they, they sense, God could never love me. God can never forgive me for what I have done. We can tell them that there is forgiveness, that the blood of Jesus Christ, that it cleanses us from all sins if we confess and turn to him and repent and, and come and call upon him and receive his love. It's the same with his love. His love is infinite. His, his love, we can't put a measurement on his love. And so Paul would write in Romans chapter 8, Yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us or loves us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height or death. You can't put a measurement on the love of God. It's infinite, isn't it? It's unconditional. It's supreme. His love for you and for me nor any other created thing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So this, this tent, this third covering made of ram skin, there wasn't any specific dimension, probably the dimension of the goat's hair, but also uh, we see that the fourth covering made of badger skin, again, badger skin, very durable and water resistant. Now, as you look at the tabernacle, again, you would come to the tabernacle, and again, on the outside, it, it was very ordinary. It was kind of ugly in a way. It was just made of animal skin, badger skins. I don't know if you guys have ever seen a badger, but you know, not too many people desire to make coats and stuff out of badgers or goat skins or, or you know, ram skins or any of those things. But again, as we've discussed, it speaks about Jesus Christ, how in Isaiah chapter 53 that there is uh, nothing about his form or comeliness or uh, his appearance that we should desire him. Uh, he looked like an ordinary Jewish man. Matter of fact, the scripture indicates that perhaps he looked older than what he really was. And we get that from John's gospel because you remember that it was the religious leaders that were disputing with Jesus there in John chapter 8. And Jesus said that Abraham, as the religious leaders were boasting about how they were descendants of Abraham and belonged to Abraham, and we've never been in bondage to anyone. And, and, and you know, how crazy for them to say that. They had been in bondage to the Babylonians and to the, you know, the, the Greeks, Medo-Persians, to the Romans at the time of Jesus. But anyway, that as they were in this dispute, Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they're going, what do you mean Abraham rejoiced to see your day? You know, Abraham was 2,000 years ago. And you're saying that you saw Abraham? You're not yet but 50 years old. And so here they're saying Jesus is around 50 years old when he was in his early 30s. So all the walking that Jesus did and, and being a carpenter and nowhere to lay his head, perhaps the indication is that he looked older than what he really was, that, that all the walking and ministering that he did, and he did quite a bit of it, and, and being up in the mountains and in a boat, that's the only place he had to lay his head, really took a toll on him physically in the way that he looked. But we don't know for sure. He's an ordinary uh, Jewish man, looking Jewish man. But inwardly, just as the tabernacle outwardly was full of animal skins, ordinary, that you wouldn't say, what a beautiful you know, tabernacle. It, it was different with the temple, with Solomon's temple and with Herod's temple. It was lined with gold. It was very beautiful. But the tabernacle itself wasn't. But as you would go into the tabernacle again, the walls lined with gold. And, and, and then the... the the linen, uh, blue and scarlet of cherubim, it would be very beautiful. Gold speaks of what? Purity. It speaks of divinity. And of course, Jesus being the Son of God, completely pure. He was divine. And so that's how it relates to Jesus as we look at him. And so verse 15, we see now the frame of the tabernacle itself that this, these coverings went over. And for the tabernacle, you shall make the boards of a K wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board. Again, that's about 15 feet. And a cubic and a half shall be the width of each board. And two tenons shall be each board of binding one another. And thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle. And you shall make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. And you shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for two for its two tenons and for the second side of the tabernacle the north side there shall be 20 boards and there are 40 sockets of silver two sockets under each of the boards verse 22 for the far side of the tabernacle westward you shall make six boards and you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle and they shall be coupled together at the bottom and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring thus it shall be for both of them and they shall be for the two corners in verse 25, and so there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each of the boards. So here in this frame of the tabernacle, the boards made of a K wood, whenever you see pictures, or if you're out there in the Negev desert or the, um, out there in the you know, deserts of Egypt or Saudi Arabia, those trees that you see out there are Achaia trees. It's a hard wood, it's a disease resistant, it's a tough wood, and so these boards were just a little over two feet wide, 15 feet high. Uh, the north and south side of the tabernacle, there was 20 boards each. The back side or the west side. Now remember that the tabernacle only has one door as we're going to see that was always on the east side. When they built the temple, the door was on the east side. And so the entrance into the outer court is facing east as well. So the back side, the west side, would have six boards and uh, two corner boards for a total of eight 
boards across the back. And the boards were joined together by a system of tenons with rings, which a bar that would run through it. So again, they didn't nail it together or screw it together. It needed to be taken down. And each board had four rings through which the bars ran through. And the corner boards had eight rings, four on two sides to accommodate or to shore up the corners. You say, whew, what does that have to do with me? Well, let's keep reading on. We read that here, that here the boards sat on two sockets, didn't they? Each 98 sockets in all, they were made of silver. We continue reading in verse 26, that you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars of the boards on the side of the tabernacle for the far side westward. And the middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. And you shall overlay the boards with gold, make their rings of gold as holders for the bars, and overlay the bars with gold. In verse 30, and you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. So the crossbars would be secure uh, the frames, 15 crossbars, each made of a K wood, overlaid with gold. And, and um, we see that uh, as you look at this illustration, you can see the four bars that would run across through those, those rings and that would hold it together. But here we see in verse 26, she shall have five um, bars. He shall make bars of a K wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle. You say there's only four that I see. We read that one of those bars would go through the middle of the boards. It would be in, in the boards. So they would run one through those you know, 20 boards and then there would be on the outside four that you could see in the rings. And so the craftsmanship is uh, very detailed here, isn't it? And, and you look at this and, and, and you think, why such details? Because the Lord here is showing him the pattern in which they can have this tabernacle. And again, it relates to us how we are to look at God's word, how it is that we are to pattern our lives as we are the temple of God, to walk with him and to live for him. We don't go to God and say, oh, you know what, Lord, I'll live any way that I want. But we pattern our lives after his commandments and his principles and the way that he desires for us to live. And even as the church, I think it's really important that we understand this, that there's a pattern, there's a model that the Lord has for the church that's in God's word. And that's what we need to model ourselves after as we come together corporately as this church, Calvary Chapel. I want to look at God's word and how it is that we are to minister. You know, what the church is to be like. And there's so many ideas and there's so many, you know, uh, opinions and, and so much out there about what the church should be like and, and all these other things. And, um, you know, everybody has their ideas. But the thing is, we look at God's word. He has a pattern for us in which we are to pattern ourselves after. And it's important for us that we know the details of that. Because I believe that's the way that God really desires for us to, to bless others, to be, uh, as we come together, a body or a temple that's going to be a blessing to a world that needs, you know, to see uh, the light of God, needs to know the truth of the gospel, that we can be effective in reaching a lost world. And so we want to pattern ourselves after this. But it's interesting that as we look at this, um, you know, I, I think that as we look at, um, you know, these, these boards that sit on sockets there uh, made of silver, I think it speaks to you and to me also that there's no reason for us or there wouldn't be any reason for us to come together. Silver being the metal of what? Of redemption. And if it wasn't for Jesus Christ redeeming us, there'd be no reason to have this Bible study. There'd be no reason for us to gather. There'd be no reason for us to have fellowship. We'd have no hope. But we can be joined together because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. So those boards, <clears throat> that frame of that tabernacle resting on those sockets, 98 sockets, as we are brought together, our foundation, Jesus Christ, what he has done for us in redeeming us with his precious blood. But also is that, 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 that pole would run through the middle of those boards as well on the sides. I think it speaks of the Holy Spirit that is inside of you and me. 
the Holy Spirit working. We, we don't see the Holy Spirit in us, but the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts and, and works in our hearts to where it does become visible that the work through the Holy Spirit that we can effectively minister to others. And so we look at all the details here and you think, why do we read all of this thing? If there's one thing that I hope you get tonight, it's this. That God is into details. And what does it mean for me? Because oftentimes we can think, you know what, God doesn't know the details of my life. And I can talk with people, and, and, and I do talk to a lot of people. And they can tell me what it is that they're going through and the difficulties and of circumstances or situations that they're facing. And, and they, we can talk a long time. But I don't know all the details of what they're going through and what they're thinking and the hurt that's in their hearts or the loss that they're feeling or the anxiousness. But the Lord does. And He knows every little detail about your life. And He sees you and He takes note of it. And it brings comfort to me to, as I read through this. I may not understand it all. We can make the analogy of redemption and coming together as, as the body of Christ. We can look at it and, and see how it points to Jesus Christ. But it also brings great comfort to me to know that the Lord knows every detail of you, the temple of God. And He knows every single detail about this church, Calvary Chapel. And that brings comfort to me as well. And He sees you and He loves you. And he desires to work in your life and he desires to, to show himself strong on your, your behalf. And know this, that he knows everything that you're going through and what it is that you're thinking. And he knows the details and he sees and he hears. And just as he told Moses there on the mountain concerning the children of Israel, I hear their cries. I see their afflictions. I know it is what it is that they're going through. It's the same with you. And every little detail that goes on in your life, he understands. So you hang on to him and you cry out to him and you keep turning to him and trusting in him. So verse 31, we see the veil here that is described to us. She shall make a veil woven of purple, well, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, a fine woven linen, and it shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. And he shall hang it upon the four pillars of Achaia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And he shall hang the veil from the clasp. And then you shall bring the ark of testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. And so, again, the tabernacle, about 45 feet long, about 15 feet wide. You would walk into the tabernacle. There was the first room, about 15 feet by 30 feet. And it was called the holy place or the outer sanctuary. There would be a veil that's being spoken of here in verses 31 and 30, uh, 32. That veil would then be behind the altar of incense. And then behind that veil would be the second room, a smaller room, 10 feet by 15 feet, where the Ark of the Testimony, that is the Ark of the Covenant, would be placed. It was called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place or the Inner Sanctuary. And so if you were a priest... You could come into the holy place. And again, on the right-hand side was the showbread table. Showbread table. Left-hand side was the seven-branch golden menorah. Straight ahead of you was the altar of incense that we'll talk about in a little bit. And then there was the veil. And the veil was made of cherubim, again, artistic designs. And it would be only the high priest that was allowed to go behind that veil, Leviticus chapter 16, on the Day of Atonement, where he would have the blood of the sacrifice on his hand. He would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Is where the tangible presence of God was. And we're going to see the high priest, his garments described to us, and how he would enter into the Holy of Holies. It was a very sobering thing that he would do once a year. Now, that, that veil represents the flesh of Jesus Christ. And the reason that it does is because in Matthew, we're going to see at the end of Matthew, when Jesus is dying on that cross, he cries out, it is finished. And then Matthew inserts some information to us, and that is when that happened, that the veil that was in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place was rent in two. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that that veil was 18 inches thick. And it rent from top to bottom. And can you imagine the priests that were in the holy place? that were never allowed in, to go into a holy of holies, what that must have been like. They knew something supernatural had happened. 
that somebody just didn't come along with scissors, scissors and start cutting away at the veil. It was 18 inches thick, rent from top to bottom. When Jesus cried out, it is finished. And again, it represents this Jesus, his flesh was torn for us. That now he's made it possible that we can come into with boldness and with confidence, as Hebrew chapter 10 says. Not our own boldness, not our own confidence, but the confidence and boldness of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, we can come now into the presence of God. We can now enter into the Holy of Holies. That symbolized the presence of God. And so what a marvelous thing for us to understand. And so that veil there separating, before it was only the high priest, once a year for a short time that could go into the Holy of Holies. And now we as Christians, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we can go into the presence of God. We have relationship with the Father, and we can fellowship with Him anytime. And so Jesus gives that wonderful invitation that I've, you know, I've quoted this verse I know a few times here on Wednesday nights of Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 that behold I stand at the door and knock and if anyone opens the door I will come into him and sup with him and fellowship with him. He's talking about I will dine with him, you know, having dinner and the Lord constantly is knocking on the door of our hearts every single day he desires for us to come and fellowship with him. We can fellowship with the Father because of Jesus Christ. He's made it possible. We have reconciliation. That's what that word means. And we can do it anytime we want, as many times as we want, any day that we want. So that's the marvelous privilege that we have. So the veil that, that um, would separate the two rooms, and then you shall put the mercy seat, verse 34, upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy, and you shall set the table outside the veil, and the lampstand across from the table, um, one side of the tabernacle towards the south, and you shall put the table on the north side. So again, just the arrangement of the furnishings. In verse 36, you shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze, for them. And so we see here that there is only one door into the tabernacle. There's only going to be one entrance into the outer court, into the tabernacle, only one way into the Holy of Holies. There wasn't side doors. There wasn't an emergency exit. There wasn't a maze that it was made of that if you go in here and you start here, you go here, it'll all eventually end up in the same way. There was only one door that the high priest, he would come through that one door into the outer court, one door into the tabernacle, through the veil, there was one way into the tangible presence of God. And Jesus, 1,500 years later, comes along and says, I am the door. I am the door. I am the door to heaven. And you recall that John, when in the vision of Revelation chapter 4, as he was caught up in the spirit into heaven. They said he saw a door standing open. Jesus is that door. And he's the door to heaven. And all throughout scripture, all the way through it, you see very, very clearly, there's one way to heaven, one door to heaven. Jesus says, I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We saw even on Sunday morning that Jesus says that, you know what, the Son is the one that knows the Father, and no one comes to the Father except whom the Son's will. That is, that we can know the Father only through the Son. And, and it just, it dumbfounds me and it amazes me how many churches, how many denominations, how many pastors, how many Christians, how many leaders that are that are supposed to be leaders in the church are saying, well, we don't want to say that. That there's only one way. We don't want to say that there's only one door. Jesus said that narrow is the way, the path that leads to eternal life. Wide is the path that leads to destruction. There's not many ways to heaven. And if we really care about people and want to give them truth, we need to tell them the message of the gospel, and that is that they're sinners, and that is there's only one way to the Father, there's only one way for forgiveness, and that's through Jesus Christ, coming in faith in Him, recognizing who He is. And there's no way to have relationship with God except through Jesus Christ. There's no way to get to heaven except that He is the door. That is it, period. And you see... That's what God has declared in his word. And I'm so thankful that he made it very, very clear to me and to you. But why there are ministry leaders and others that are saying, well, we don't want to be exclusive and, you know, we don't want to be seem intolerant. 
man, we want people to know the truth. So we always want to make sure that we stand on that truth and don't waver on it. And, and we don't say, well, you know what, it could be. And, you know, I talked to somebody this week and, you know, somebody who's supposed to be a ministry leader and, and, and compromising and saying, well, this person doesn't really believe in Christian values, but, you know, they're a good person. I think God loves them. And, yeah, God loves them. But they still need to repent. And they still need to hear the gospel message. And one of the reasons that, that I keep pressing this point, and one of the reasons why, you know, somebody said, you know, you always give the gospel on Sunday morning. I want to make sure that, that you, and no one thinks that, that they're saved because they came to Bible study. You see what I mean? And that can happen. Well, I go to church, I go to Bible study, I know the Bible. Have you given your heart to Jesus Christ? Have you repented and cried out to him? Have you come to him in faith? Because Bible study is not going to save you. And Calvary Chapel is not going to save you. And Pastor Jeff can't save you. No one else, nothing else, no other God. It's only Jesus Christ. He is the door. And that's why I want to make it very clear. Because there are people that sit in churches that they think, I'm going to go to heaven because I was good, or I belong to this church, or I went to church, you know, most Sundays, or, you know, I served in the church, and, and as good as it is to serve in the church and go to church and those things, it won't save you. It's Jesus Christ alone. And we can think, well, my good outweighs my bad, or whatever it is. None of us can present our righteousness before God. And if we think that we can present our own righteousness before God and not be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that we're fooling ourselves and we're buying into the deception and the lie of the enemy and of the world. And so we want to make clear understanding and give that understanding to others that Jesus is the door. There is one door into the presence of God, and that's through Jesus Christ. One door to heaven, and that's it. None other. No one else, nothing else. Our faith and trust in Him. And that's why Paul would say to the Corinthian church, that's why I preach nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What Jesus Christ has done for us. So He is that door into the tabernacle, and I'm thankful for that door, that, that Jesus Christ died for, for us, that we can come into the presence of the Lord. And then chapter 27, very quickly we'll go through it. The altar of burnt offering, again, you shall make an altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. And so the altar is a box-like structure. Again, you would come into the outer court. If you were an Israelite, you could come there and give your sacrifice. The priest would do the sacrifice there, but only the priest could go into the holy place place only the high priest could go into the holy of holies and in this altar where they did the sacrifices is a seven and a half foot square about four and a half foot high made of bronze because it could withstand high temperatures and so we'll read about the sacrifices that they would do when we get to the book of leviticus on the corners of the altar had horns and so those horns is interesting that you see them mentioned throughout the old testament in leviticus chapter 8 they were covered with blood at the consecration of the priests. On the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16, they would also be covered with blood. But it was also a place of refuge. Now you remember in Leviticus chapter 20, or Exodus chapter 21, you remember that when we're talking about the law concerning violence and, and what happens if you kill somebody, that it was there in chapter 21 of Exodus, if it was premeditated murder, even if they were on the horns of the altars, that they were to be taken away and, and they were to be executed. So it was a place of refuge, and we see that with Joab in, in 1 Kings chapter 2. Joab was the commander of David's armies for many years. And, and Joab was faithful to be the commander to David's army, but Joab was kind of a loose cannon. And he did some things on his own, and he ended up killing Abner, the, the, the commander of, of, the, of Israel, you know, after Saul had died and Abner had come to talk to David and said, you know, I want to join and let's become one nation. And David said, great. And then Joab went and killed Abner. And so he was guilty, shed innocent blood. There was a couple people, as you read there in, in first and, and, or Second Samuel, and as you go into First Kings, that Joab ended up killing innocent blood. So when David was dying, he told his son Solomon, you need to deal with Joab because he's not innocent. 
So it was Solomon that sent someone to go get jo um, Joab, and he's there holding on to the horns of the altar. So you'll see him, this mentioned throughout the Old Testament, and they took Joab away and ended up killing him. And, and Solomon was doing according to what Exodus chapter 21 had said. And so the accessories to the, uh, the altar of, of sacrifice, we see in verse 3, also he shall make its pans to receive its ashes, its shovels and its basins, its forks and its fire pans, he shall make all its utensils of bronze. Kind of like when you get a barbecue, you get all the, you know, uh, a new barbecue and you get all the utensils that go with it and that's kind of what's being described here so verse 4 and shall make a grate for it a network of bronze and the network you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners and he shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath and the network may be midway up the altar and shall make poles for the altar poles of acacia wood and overlay them with bronze so many of the furnishings they they had rings like the ark of the covenant and the uh, the showbread table, the altar of incense, this altar had rings on the corners. They put those poles made of wood and they would carry it. They didn't put it on a cart or anything. They would bear it on their shoulders. And in verse 8, you shall make it hollow with boards and it, and it shall, was shown to you on the mountain so uh, they make it. And then the court of the tabernacle, that is the outer court, verse 9. And you shall also make the court of the tabernacle for the south side. There shall be hangings for the court made of fine wooden linen, 100 cubits long for one side, so about 150 feet long. And its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets shall be bronze. The hook of the pillars for their bands shall be silver. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long with its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze and the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. And along with the width of the court, the west side shall be hanging of 50 cubits and their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. And the width of the court on the east side shall be 50 cubits and the hangings on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And verse 15, and on the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. For the gate of the court there shall be a screen 20 cubits long, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine woven linen made by a weaver, and it shall have four pillars and four sockets. And all the pillars around the court shall have bands of silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their sockets of bronze. In verse 18, the length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the width 50 throughout the height five cubits made of fine woven linen and the sockets of bronze and all the utensils of the tabernacle for all its service, all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. And so we see here um, the hangings for the perimeter of the courtyard. It was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. It was marked off by fine linen uh, fence that was white in color. The fence surrounded the courtyard as you see in this illustration here. And it was held up by a system of bronze pillars and uh, there was 20 on the long side, 10 on the short side, three pillars on the side were the entrance of the courtyard. The pillars were about seven and a half feet tall, so it was like a big fence is what it was, according to verse 18. And each bronze base had a silver top base and silver hooks for hanging the linen. And so in verse 6 here, the gate on the east side again, woven with four colors of blue, purple, scarlet, and fine linen, and it was 30 feet wide, so the Israelites would come into the courtyard where they would do their sacrifices on this altar. Now again, as I prayed at the beginning of the service, the court of the tabernacle, the temple, has an important theme, and that is it was a place of worship. The sacrifices, like the burnt offering and, and, and the peace offering, they were offerings uh, of, of fellowship to the Lord, of worship to the Lord. So you see that, as we keep that in mind as you read the Psalms, and hopefully as, as you think about this, it will have a new meaning as you read the Psalms. Yes, I remember talking about the, the courtyard, and, and, and even if you don't understand all the details of it, it was, the courtyard was a place where they would come and be able to have worship and give sacrifice. And so what does the Lord you know, liken that to? Well, my soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord, Psalm 84 says. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness, Psalm 84.10. Give to the Lord the glory, do His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts, Psalm 96.8. Enter into His courts with thanksgiving, or His gates with thanksgiving. Into His courts what? with praise is what the psalmist writes in Psalm 100. And so you see that theme throughout 
the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. And so here you would come in, and it was a place where actually worship was to be done and sacrifice. It was more than, here, here's my animal as a burn offering, or, you know, here's a, a peace offering, or whatever it may be. It was a time of worship for the people. It was a time uh, to give their sacrifice. And then we'll read also the trespass offerings and the sin offerings as well and, and uh, that were offered up because of sin. But it was a place at our courtyard where worship would take place, and it was a very important part, and it was the primary place of worship for the children of Israel, for this nation. They would come there. And even in the first temple, the children of Israel, even from across the nation, would come, and they would come and worship and offer their sacrifice. And then as we finish very quickly, the care of the lampstand, and you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. And in the tabernacle of meeting, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening till morning before the Lord, and it shall be a statue forever for their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. Now Aaron and his sons are the priests that would go in and minister. Keep this in mind on Sunday when you're here. And we're going to see that the Pharisees are going to challenge Jesus about the Sabbath, that the, the disciples were there eating grain in the fields, and they said, work, you can't do that. And so Jesus rebukes them. And one of the things that points that Jesus makes is the priest. He says, don't they work on the Sabbath? And yet they're blameless, aren't they? Matter of fact, they would do double the work. They would do double the sacrifice, as you can read in Numbers chapter 28, I believe, that on the Sabbath you would do double the sacrifice. They would be there taking care of the lamps, it says, from evening till morning. They would constantly be working, and so it was hard work being a priest. You know, they're giving the sacrifices, taking care of the lampstand. And here the oil that was used will be done in one minute, and then we're going to go and we're just going to worship the Lord. But I want to end with this. It was made of pressed olives. And the oil was then used for the light of the tabernacle. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, that we're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. And he would talk about the glory of God. And maybe, just maybe, there's somebody here that you feel like, man, I feel like this last week or this last month or this last year or whatever that I've been really hard-pressed, I've been crushed, and it's been hard and it's been difficult. And I want to encourage you that you just allow the Lord to minister to you. And the Holy Spirit oils the symbol of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, just the work in you. And as you do that, trusting in the Lord and resting in the Lord and allowing Him to do and enable you to get through those pressing times, that you're going to be a light. And that light is going to be manifested to others. And it's going to be used for the glory of God. And people are going to see it. They're going to say, I see that you've been crushed and you've been pressed. But yet there's something different about you. There's something enlightening about you. And there's something real about you. That those pressing times can be used not only as you trust in the Lord to build your faith and see His faithfulness, but for you to be a light to others and reflect His glory and the testimony of His faithfulness to others as they see you trusting in Him. And so, Father, we thank You that we can see these details that we can ignore, but yet, Lord, we can 